This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. From our offices overlooking New York's Riverside Park, this is the Commonweal Podcast. On this episode, I sit down with Commonweal contributor Massimo Fagioli to get his thoughts about the upcoming Bishops' Summit on clerical sex abuse, which gets underway at the Vatican on February 21st. Another Commonweal contributor, Paul Moses, speaks with Marie Collins, a former member of Pope Francis's Papal Commission on Clergy Sexual Abuse, about her experiences and insights on the issue. Commonweal's associate editor, Matthew Sittman, interviews New Yorker staff writer Vincent Cunningham, and associate publisher Megan Ritchie and assistant editor Griffin Olenek discuss the paintings of Swedish abstract expressionist Hilma Off Klint. Her work is now on exhibit at New York's Guggenheim Museum. This is the Commonweal Podcast. On February 21st, the heads of the world's bishops' conferences will gather at the Vatican for a three-day summit on the protection of minors from sexual abuse. Anticipation initially ran high, but with the Vatican tamping down expectations in the run-up to the meeting, there are questions over just what's supposed to come from it. I recently talked with contributor Massimo Fagioli about how the Church is supposed to confront the global scope of the crisis. Thank you, Massimo, for being here with us today. Thank you. Okay, so we're talking a couple of weeks in advance of the uh, February meeting of the uh, uh, heads of bishops' conferences from around the world, uh, gathering at the Vatican to discuss the sex abuse crisis. I guess a lot of us are wondering, what should we expect of this, if anything? Well, in these last few weeks, the Vatican has consistently tried to downplay expectations and tell people that big uh, changes, big breakthroughs shouldn't be expected. This is something Francis said uh, on the in-flight press conference coming back from Panama. So this is the communication strategy, I would say. On the other hand, there has been, uh, I would say, an, an interesting effort to keep the public updated in terms of the preparation because we know that at the end of 2018, the committee for the preparation of this meeting has been announced, and they are names that are interesting because two of them, especially the Archbishop of Malta and the Jesuit uh, the psychiatrist who teaches at, at the Gregorian University, Rome and who's the president of the Center for Child Protection, they are top experts. So this will not be about church politics. It will be about experts trying to create a new level of awareness in terms of urgency of the problem and in terms of what the universal church expects of every local church in terms of the prevention in terms of the uh, accompaniment of the victims and in terms of uh, seeking justice for those who have been abused. So this is what we know so far. What are the particularly American aspects of the crisis that influence how it is understood globally? Is the rest of the world paying attention to the way American Catholics are paying attention to it? Or what do they think, what do they think about the way American Catholics are paying attention to the crisis? Well, so certainly uh, Catholics in other countries are paying attention to the way Catholics in this country are dealing with this crisis. Because in the United States, there are a, a few special features. One is that there is a free press that's made of Catholics and on Catholics that has been much more active than the press almost anywhere else. And then the Catholic Church in the United States is a church that doesn't survive thanks to taxpayers' money, but it survives thanks to the effort and the sacrifices of lay Catholics. And this gives a different shape to the meaning of this crisis. So here, 
the crisis in this country, we have the impression that it's been a series of failures and that very little has changed. But if you look at other countries, actually the Catholic Church in the United States can be seen as a model of a church that has developed effective policies where there has been a real rise in the awareness of of this crisis. So here, the parochialism that sometimes affects American Catholics should also uh, change our perception because if you compare, if I compare what the U.S. church has done with what the Italian church has done, I think the Italian church is 20 years, is late, is 20 years late. And so we should take some comfort in in the idea that it's a church that has shown signs of reactivity that other churches hasn't shown yet because the crisis hasn't exploded yet. And we don't know if other churches will be able to meet the standards that were set by the West Church with the Dallas Charter almost 20 years ago. Yeah, and I guess this does get into the idea of expectations, because if, if we are trying to think of a way uh, that the church can come to a solution on a, on a global scale, uh, given the differences among uh, among countries and across the vast global church, I mean, the Dallas Charter isn't necessarily a model that can simply be picked up and applied in, say, some other country uh, in the Southern Hemisphere, for instance, or in Europe, for that matter. Well, you're right. So here, I believe that the global church will have to take a look at different models. One is the United States with the Dallas Charter. In my opinion, one example that should be looked at more carefully, because it's very interesting, also for Catholics in this country, is the Australian model. Because there has been a national investigation, uh, government uh, mandated, and there has been a national response of the Bishop Conference and of all the religious orders of Australia to the recommendations issued by the government. And so this is something that shows that uh, global Catholicism is dealing in different ways uh, also because of the, of the different arrangements between church and state, different kinds of establishments. So here we are still in the middle of a learning process because this is a global crisis and there are many factors that change how a national church responds to this. And um, I believe... One of the problems is that now Catholic churches tend to be more parochial than once, I mean, paradoxically. So when didn't when we did not have the internet, we had more familiarity with the global Catholic experience. Now we are more interconnected, but we are less interested in what's happening beyond our borders. The abuse crisis could be a good... Uh, um, way to, I mean, help us understand that we can learn from other churches. And that's an interesting thing to think about too, particularly because recently, well, not just recently, I've I've heard you speak about this before, but more recently, you gave a presentation in Virginia where you reiterated your belief that the crisis, uh, the sex abuse crisis, is the most serious the Catholic Church has faced since the Reformation, and. I guess I just want to hear you express a little bit uh, for the folks who are listening to why, what makes you say that? Well, I think that uh, this crisis has to do with a particular kind of crime, which is the sexual abuse of children, which is a very old crime. So in the legal texts, I mean, since the early centuries, it is present in this text. What's new right now, and that's why I think it's a crisis within other crises. The most serious from the Reformation is that you have this crisis that has to do with a series of issues that are theologically, 
And from a disciplinary point of view, um, unsolved or unaddressed. So one is uh, the problem of uh, sexuality and or homosexuality in the Catholic Church, which, if you want, is something that explodes in the late 60s, 68. But with this crisis, I believe we have the whole series of unsolved issues that are correctly or incorrectly connected to the case of abuse crisis. So there is a second level, which is a theological. And then there is a third level, which I believe makes this crisis echo a little bit the Reformation, that these uh, Catholic crises or theological crises, they interact with a fracture that is uh, geopolitical and it's political within the Christian world and the Catholic world, which is something that you don't have in these last four centuries, but you do have in the 16th century because in Martin Luther's uh, Reformation, is also a political crisis between Northern Europe, German-speaking Europe, non-Latin Europe, and uh, Southern Europe, Southern Catholic Europe, uh, or goes back to the 15th century when you have that there is a Catholic sphere of influence that wants to assert its supremacy on other areas of the, of the Catholic Church. And we have seen that in the summer of 2018, which uh, was for the Catholic Church the equivalent of the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, when we went very, very close to the point of no return in the explosion of, of Catholicism, because if more than 20 bishops say that the guy who wants the Pope to resign, that he, he is right, that is one step before a revolt in the Catholic Church's episcopate. So here, I'm not saying that this crisis is like the Reformation, but there are some elements that in their interacting together are producing something that I cannot find as an historian in the 19th century or the 18th century. It's one of these crises that say something on the difficulty of being a global Catholic Church. So I think that that long-term historical context is useful and helpful. And I want to get back to the sort of the nearer term and the immediate uh, with the meeting that is coming up in uh, later this month in February. What do you think will come out of the meeting? And and this is sort of a multi-part question. And if you just bear with me, what... I guess I want to hear your thoughts on what you think will come from the meeting, what it, will it say about Francis, and where does the church go from here? Where do ordinary Catholics, American and otherwise, American and Catholics around the world, where do we go from here? So I think this meeting will say something on Francis in the sense that Francis thinks the church and the reform of the church um with a long-term perspective that begins always with um, a spiritual reform, a cultural reform, and only at the end of this is ready for institutional structure reforms. So if we expect from that meeting announcements uh, about new tribunals or a list of the people that have been excommunicated, this is not what we can see. What I believe is the interesting part of this meeting is that the Pope and those who work with him are concerned that the crisis will explode in countries where it hasn't exploded yet because there's no free press or because there is not that kind of, uh, of freedom that allowed victims or witnesses to come forward, they are afraid that if it explodes in countries where so far the crisis has been kept under a lid, will be much more destructive than it has been in other countries. So what 
we have heard is that they want to create a common awareness, a common readiness in responding to this in uh, churches, especially those where almost nothing has been done. So for us, it is perfectly normal for us to see our bishops to meet with uh, victims of abuse. This is something that is not normal at all in many other countries. And so this will happen in Rome at the end of February. So I believe this will be a test for American Catholics because they will have to consider that the U.S. Church um, has more resources to deal with this crisis than other countries. So this meeting will be made mostly for countries that haven't experienced what the U.S. Church has gone through. So the U.S. Church has problems, especially in restoring the trust and and, and the credibility of the U.S. bishops that simply cannot be solved by the Vatican in the short term. This is something that we should, I think, be aware of and be ready for something that will teach us, as American Catholics, something, but not directly on the abuse crisis, but on what the global church is in this crisis. Massimo, thanks for being here today to take these questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Commonweal Podcast. If you like what you've been hearing, please spread the word and subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream podcasts. Thanks in advance for your support. In March 2014, Marie Collins joined the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors, Pope Francis's then-new commission on clergy sex abuse. The only abuse survivor in the group, she resigned from the commission in 2017 out of frustration with Vatican officials' reluctance to cooperate with its work to protect children. Here, she speaks with Paul Moses about her experience on the commission and her connection and conversations with Pope Francis in the time since. She also talks about her suggestions for the February meeting at the Vatican, including taking up the issue of clerical sexual abuse of adults. Thanks so much for speaking to us here at uh, Commonweal. As I was preparing for this interview, I got to thinking about the remit, the papal order that created the uh, commission that you served on. And so I, I saw that, as the announcement said, your role on the commission was to recommend policy changes to the Vatican. But I, I went a little further into it, and I saw that it gave you really a, a mandate from the Pope to review the internal operations of some of the Vatican dicasteries, the Vatican congregations and agencies that were relevant to this question of sexual abuse in the clergy. And I, I was wondering, you know, uh, as one lay person to another, what was that like to be able to delve into how well they were doing their job in, inside the Vatican? It would have been very interesting. It would have been very helpful to the commission uh, to be able to look at how the different dicasteries had been dealing with the different aspects of the abuse problem. But unfortunately, there was resistance to that in the actual Curia departments. We wanted to talk to them about uh, what procedures they had in place, how they found them, were they working, were they having problems. Uh, we wanted to put to them some of our ideas, see what they thought of them, could they improve on them, had they any ideas of their own, uh, back and forth. And uh, they would not come and talk to us, which was a great shame. So for 18 months, nearly two years, the different departments, they would not come and, and talk to the commission. So we went ahead with our work, of course, but uh, without being able to look into uh, the practices that were already in place to learn from them or to learn if the, what their weaknesses were or their strengths. What would you have liked to find out about? Well, uh, for example, we were writing a guidelines template, which was 
in order that we, our idea was that we would circulate it when it was completed to all the Episcopal conferences around the world and they could use it as a basis for drawing up their safeguarding policies. They would be requested to incorporate the measures that were in this template, which was best practice as per the uh, experts on the commission. And we wanted to talk to the CDF uh, because they had a lot of policies which had been sent in from the Episcopal conferences. And we wanted to see what those documents were like, what their weaknesses were, what their strengths were, were they up to the standard that we were actually going to recommend. And um, they wouldn't allow us to see them. They said they were confidential. And I found that quite staggering because we were a pontifical commission there to advise the Pope and they were a department in the Vatican also working in the administration for the Pope. But they wouldn't they wouldn't talk to us. So the commission did come up with recommendations to Pope Francis, I guess, to create a tribunal that would be able to review the actions of bishops who uh, who may have you know concealed the wrongdoing. Yeah, because at the time, uh, there was no really clear process in place. So we uh, worked on an accountability tribunal, which we felt should be central in the Vatican. It would hold bishops accountable who were negligent or who had covered up or who had protected abusers, that they would be judged by this central tribunal and there would be investigations and sanctions. We put this proposal to the Holy Father and he accepted it. He announced on the 10th of June 2015 that this was going to happen. The C9, in fact, announced the Pope had approved it. He was to give all the financial uh, support necessary and he was to give all the personnel support necessary and he was to put it into the hands of the CDF, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, to actually implement. And its response was, well, we, we already uh, have been doing something like this, uh, I guess. Yeah, that's it. They, a few months later, we heard that they were not going to implement it. And uh, I discovered later when the prefect of the CDF, Cardinal Muller, spoke after my resignation. He said that they decided not to implement it because they had all the process they needed in place, which, in fact, not, was not correct because the Pope brought out his, as a loving mother to replace the tribunal, um, the motto Popo. Right, his the document from 2016. That's right. That set up a, a process for judging bishops that spread the authority around to four other different Vatican offices, I would say probably mainly the Congregation for Bishops. That's right. And to specifically uh, take away jurisdiction from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the CDF. That's right. The Accountability Tribunal recommendation had gone in 2015. The Pope's motor probe came out in 1916. And it took the accountability process out of the hands of the CDF, and it put it primarily in the hands of the Congregation for the Bishops, which... I personally do not feel was was a good idea because it's very difficult for colleagues to judge colleagues in any institution. So that, I felt, was a weakness in that policy. I met the Pope in August last year, and he said it was in operation, and he was holding bishops accountable, and when he found they were guilty, he removed them. But the problem is that we're not seeing this in a transparent manner. We don't know how it's working, who's doing the judging, etc., yeah, I guess that's the big question. Is the structure set up in 2016? It's been a few years now. How do we assess it? Well, we don't We don't know. We don't know what's happening. I mean, when I spoke to the, the, the Holy Father in August, I asked about the tribunal and he had changed his mind and he, he had now got the motor propo, obviously, because the CDF wouldn't work the tribunal. But he was now saying that uh, he felt bishops couldn't be judged by the same standard. They had to be judged by different standards, depending on what culture they were in. And he was talking about there being judgments at local level. By whom? And that, by uh, he said on the plane, returning to, to Rome, that he would explain it to me next time he saw me. But I think everyone needs an explanation as to exactly what is going on. Where are the judges? Who are the judges? And who has been found guilty? Nobody is. Um, bishops are going, being allowed to just resign and walk away. And if they've been found guilty of negligence, um, that should be known. It's a deterrent to others, you know. Right. Now, I, I have that quote from Pope Francis in front of me from where he spoke to the press on the way home from Ireland in August. And he said, 
I said this to Marie, the spirit and the recommendation of as a loving mother are being put into effect. Yeah. A bishop must be judged by a tribunal, but not always the same tribunal because that is not possible. She doesn't understand this entirely, but when I see her, because she comes to the Vatican sometimes, we call her, I will explain it to her more clearly. And, and one more thing, he says, I like her. So <laughs> I'm wondering about your, your connection with, with Pope Francis, uh, what that's been like, but did he ever explain this to you more fully? No, I haven't seen him since. And I, I think, you know, when we did converse and have conversed, I, I sort of speak straight to the point, And I think he's a man that likes that. So uh, that probably goes in my favor. So the meeting the Pope has called uh, on the protection of minors, inviting many bishops from all over the world to uh, the Vatican, I, I get, believe, February 21st to 24th. That's right, yeah. And, and on your website, mariecollins.net, you've posted your suggestions for this meeting. And there's one thing that's a little off the beaten path, but one thing that really jumped out at me was this proposal. Review canon law on the abuse of vulnerable adults separating it from the abuse of minors. And I think that that part of it often goes by the wayside that adults, both women and men, uh, have uh, suffered abuse in quite a few instances from, from clergy. If there's not such a good mechanism for cases with minors, it seems there's even less for dealing with these cases with adults. <laughs> well, there's even less. I think the two... Um you know, they should not be confused. And the canon law that's there at the moment, it's vague enough about minors. You know, it speaks about neglects against the Sixth Commandment. Um, and it talks about minors and it, it uh, defines vulnerable adults as those who have a problem with their mental faculties. You know, they they, they maybe have not reached the adulthood in, in mental uh, faculties. Um, and that is that is one thing, but the problem is that vul that is not the entire definition of vulnerable adults. A vulnerable adult can be vulnerable due to the fact that there's a differential in power between themselves and their abuser, or they can be somebody who, say, has uh, been going for counselling to a priest. They're, they've had a, a marriage breakdown, or they've had a severe illness, or they're suicidal for whatever reason. They may be in a very emotional, very depressed state, and they are very vulnerable to somebody taking advantage of them. Young seminarians and young nuns, they can be very much exploited by somebody in authority who has a great deal of power over them. So a vulnerable adult is not somebody that is permanently vulnerable, like necessarily like somebody who's, who have mental faculty problems, but they can be vulnerable at a certain time in their lives. They're not permanently vulnerable. But that has to be really taken into account. And the way you deal with it, the way you keep those people safe, and the way you deal with anyone who would exploit them, it's got to be different in the way you would handle a case of a minor, someone under the age of 18. It's a different. It's an abuse, but it's, it's a different category of abuse. And it, it really, in my mind, needs to be dealt with quite separately. We've seen it in America, you know, the McCarrick case, we've seen nuns now coming forward. And I do believe this is going to grow massively for the church in the future. Allegations against Cardinal McCarrick have certainly echoed throughout the church. But do, do you think that Cardinal McCarrick's case concerning his alleged involvement with seminarians, do you think that's going to maybe... Uh, lead to some change in, in terms of th this question of abuse of adults? I hope it does, because it's it's brought it's not that the, the problem hasn't existed, but it has brought it into the spotlight. And the nuns are beginning to come forward. I mean, it was said, you know, it only is, applies really to nuns in Africa. Everyone will say, oh, young nuns in Africa can be exploited by priests. But actually... It's happening just as much in America or anywhere else. And I think with the Me Too movement particularly, nuns now are going to feel they can come forward. You know, we've been told a number of times now to have low expectations, but I'm wondering what specific steps you'd like to see emerge from the Protection of Minors meeting. Well, I, I had hoped we would see more. I mean, from what the Pope said the other day, he said, before you have protocols and safeguarding procedures, you have to have awareness 
And that's what this meeting, he said, is intended to do. It's make the bishops from around the world aware that abuse exists and what it is. It's appalling, really, to think that the church is saying they're going to do this now. I mean, where have they been for the last two decades? It's a little like Groundhog Day for me. I mean, in 2012, there was a symposium in the Gregorian in Rome. It was backed very, very much so by the uh, by the Vatican. It went on for three days. There were bishops from 110 ecclesiastical conferences. There was uh, 30 uh, religious leaders from religious congregations. It was addressed by experts in every aspect of abuse, those who looked after perpetrators, those who dealt with survivors. I spoke as a survivor and uh, I was there and uh, they had workshops in different languages for the bishops. They had question times, they had discussions, Mm -hmm. and we had um, liturgy of repentance. Uh, Cardinal Wellett led that. Cardinal Levada at the time was the prefect of the CDF and he opened the, the symposium. Pope Benedict sent an apostolic blessing to every everyone participating, and he sent a message. It's an absolute carbon copy of what is happening now in February, and that was seven years ago. So this is not a new a new move. They've done it before, and that's what disappoints me. We need education and we need awareness, but we need proper safeguarding in a parallel fashion. I suppose what I would like to see, as I said, is I'd like to see proper safeguarding standards. It seems kind of discouraging, I guess, for a lot of people, which leads me to wonder about your relationship to the church. My own relationship, I mean, I'm a lifelong Catholic. I still have my my faith. I still believe in the tenets of the church. I do have difficulty practicing my religion. Uh, Some of that goes back to the fact that I'm a survivor and that has left me with various uh, problems. I find it very difficult uh, to be a Catholic, as as many of us do nowadays. I see priests on the ground in parishes doing excellent work, wonderful work. But as you go up the, the chain of command, if you like, the higher you get in the church, when you get to the hierarchy and the actual institution, it's very hard to have respect and trust at that level. And I think that's where a lot of disillusionment is, and my own disillusionment is. I went to my own archbishop at the time I uh, I was trying to bring my abuser to court in 1997, and my archbishop protected him, wouldn't cooperate with the police, etc. The the normal story, but it was very disillusioning to find that that someone at that level would would uh, take the side of the abuser, and that is um, I think why people are very disillusioned because at a much bigger, broader level. This way of handling things has, has disillusioned a lot of people. I hold on to my religion, but, you know, I sort of feel I say to myself, well, why should I leave? Why, why should I have to leave? I have been working to try and improve things in the church. I haven't been working to bring it down. You know, I want a church that I can be proud of. I'm not proud of it at the moment. You know, you have um, an interesting relationship with Pope Francis in that you seem to disagree publicly but in kind of a friendly way with you know, mutual respect, I would say, not too many people, lay people, get to know a Pope in that way. So <laughs> no. what is that like? It's, it's quite extraordinary, really. I mean, I learned a little about him when I was, I was writing a letter to him while I was on the commission. I was writing him a letter and then CEO here in Ireland advised me on the writing of the letter. And he said, he told me to be factual, straightforward, and not to be overly obsequious, you know, or reverential. The Pope didn't like that. <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think, and, and in person, I think he's the same. You know, if you have a point to make, he respects the fact you have a point to make. I may not agree with what he has to say. I may not, I ask him something and I may get an answer that I don't agree with, but he will listen to what I have to say and I will listen to what he has to say. And I think that is respect on both sides. You, you can disagree with someone without having to have a, a negative interaction or relationship you know i'm not claiming to be a a close friend of the popes i've only met him a few times i've only had the opportunity to speak on a couple of occasions but it is i think i also i think something as a lay person that i wouldn't have really grasped internally is that you know he's he's a human being as well as pope that becomes more somehow more obvious to you it sounds like a silly thing to say but when you're speaking to him you know 
particularly Pope Francis. He's very down to earth and, and he, he doesn't have any, what you would call airs and graces and, and, uh, he, he, he wants to speak on the same level as the people he's speaking to. He doesn't put on any, um, and particularly when he's talking to survivors, he, he's not patronizing or in any way speaking, you know, from that lofty perch. He, he wants to listen. If he doesn't understand what's being said, he'll ask for an explanation. He will express his views. He'll, he'll show his emotions. I may not agree, as I say, with, with, with when he's doing some things and, uh, on specific things like accountability, but I do think he's a good man, mm-hmm. you know, and that, that, right. that's the best I can say. You know, I have my problems mm-hmm. with the church. I have my problems with the institution and I'd like to see, like to see a lot of change, but a lot of problems in the church are with people who are corrupted by power and um, the power takes over. Uh, when they get very high in the church, I think this is something you cannot accuse the Pope of. I, I don't think he is someone who is in that category at all. He's a, he's a very down to earth man, you know. There are some who really lay it on him pretty harshly, but I guess that goes with the territory. It's a very obvious fact that um, there are factions in the church, both in the Vatican and outside, who are very anti-Francis. I mean, they're the anti-Francis and the pro-Francis factions, and. Uh, I'm not sure if some of the resistance to the commission at my time was not due to the fact that it was a, a France's initiative and so resisting it was, was resisting him. Uh, there's a lot of politics in the Vatican. The actual issue of the protection of children came a long way down the line from uh, the politics. And it's the same with the, the anti and pro Francis, you know, and, and uh, I've never got into any of that because it's actually a pity to see the church leadership really tearing itself apart with these um, internal wars when we want to see them dealing with real problems and particularly problems of children being harmed and their lives being destroyed. Many years of my life were destroyed. And, and uh, I just, the reason I can't pain so hard is because I don't want to see one child being abused that could be saved from it. Um, can't do anything about the past. I can't change what happened to me, but if you can get through to to some of these people who feel that it's all an exaggeration or it's you know it's um it's not as bad that as it seems etc cetera, etc cetera, um then it's worthwhile just keeping going but um i would like to see this meeting in february dealing with the uh, awareness and education no harm in that but also getting these um principles to to sit down and commit to safeguarding now, not five years' time or ten years' time, now, and also having them be told in very clear terms what will happen if they don't. Ah, yeah. Well, can we look forward? I I know on your uh, website, mariecollins.net, you occasionally update with what you're doing, and can we look forward to seeing uh, some observations on this meeting after it's concluded? I put up the submission. I, <laughs> I put up the submission I'd made to the commission, and uh, I'll certainly be putting up any comments over the time of the uh, of the meeting because I'm not hopeful, but I hope you know. But it would be great to be surprised and uh, in a positive way. So let's hope. That's all we can do. Well, thank you very much, Marie Collins. Thank you for speaking to us at Commonweal, and, and thanks for all you've done. Not at all, Paul. The Commonweal Podcast is supported in part by the generosity of Commonweal's associates. To become part of this giving tradition, log on to www.commonwealmagazine.org and click on the donate link. Vincent Cunningham is a staff writer at The New Yorker, where he has written on, among other things, Pope Francis, Aretha Franklin, and more recently, how the idea of hell has shaped the way we think. Vincent came by the Commonweal office to talk with our associate editor, Matthew Sipman, about writing and reviewing, about the amazing empathy of Dorothy Day, about the problem with the prosperity gospel, as well as hell. I thought to begin, we might just describe the origins of the piece. Sure, The yeah. proximate cause is a... You're reviewing, in a way, Scott G. Bruce's The Penguin Book of Hell. Yeah. 
but you also begin on a personal note. So it felt like it tapped into something sure. that you had a, a longer standing interest in. And then we can also describe the piece in more detail, but right. just where did this piece come from? Yeah, my essential sort of idea about book reviews is that you have to very quickly enact some kind of aggression on them. You have to say, right. actually, this is an essay about this thing that I care about and not mm -hmm. be sort of sort of slavishly beholden to the book. Otherwise, it turns right. into a book report really quickly. Right. So uh. I guess the order in which these things happen is my editor showed me, you know, this book is coming out. Maybe that'd be interesting. Mm -hmm. I and mean, I really love my editor. His name is David Hagland. He's a great dude. And we get along really well. Mm -hmm. So we're always talking about what might work. So I said, yeah, that's great. And I just had all of these stray thoughts about hell that had sort of been accumulating throughout mm -hmm. my life, my childhood. As you say, at the beginning of the piece, I talk about my dad's death and how you know, as a kid, you know, 10, 11 years old, you're hearing a lot of theology about death and the afterlife. And when it's personal to you, those things come together. Mm -hmm. And that's like kind of like my general idea about thought anyway, is yeah. that like you're never yeah. purely thinking, you're never in some celestial realm of like, it's always happening at the same time as your yeah. life. And one is always sort of influencing the other. So like, that's yeah. the only honest way to write. To yeah, you. yeah. And you grew up attending a black church in Harlem, mm -hmm. but you were educated by Jesuits. Yeah. So I thought that was an interesting combination yeah. of well, influences. It's even, <laughs> it's even more complicated than that. Oh, um, yeah. So my parents met in a Baptist church. That's uh -huh. how they met. My dad was a choir yeah. director and mm -hmm. my mom was in the choir that they were, yeah. you know, in together that was mm -hmm. directed by a friend there. So they met in the Baptist church. Wow. My father played though at Catholic churches, you know, he would play gigs everywhere. Oh, wow. And so one of his, one of his mainstays was Catholic churches through that work. And sort of through the course of his life, he ended up the director of music at a Catholic church in Chicago. Oh, so we wow. moved to Chicago. The first place I lived in Chicago was a convent mm -hmm. for several months before my parents found a place. And so the whole time I lived in Chicago, I went to Catholic church because that's where, mm -hmm. you know, we worshiped because my dad worked there. So I was, mm -hmm. I am baptized Catholic. And so we lived there from when I was three till I was nine. Mm -hmm. We came back because my dad was dying mm -hmm. and shortly thereafter joined a Pentecostal church. But because, uh, you know, my, my, one of my dad's best friends is still, he's still alive is a Jesuit priest. Oh, wow. And so he helped me get into this high school that I went to around the time of this piece in all oh, boys. Wow. Um, uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's not open anymore. St. Aloysius Gonzaga, but it I used see. to be on 130th and 5th, an all boys school that I went to for two years. Interesting. Yeah. Inter very interesting. And so you begin the piece that way with a little bit of your background. And then you do due diligence and talk about the book mm -hmm. in the sense of the selections in it and beginning with Homer, so pre Christian through Dante. And then for me, sort of expected right. what, what you'd expect to find in an anthology about hell. Yeah. But then for me, the real pivot of the piece came when you turned to Dorothy Day. Yeah. And that was really the place I was not expecting the piece to go. Yeah. I was kind of looking for a bridge between the, the main two forms of hell that are present in that book and that I right. think are also present in our understanding of hell. There's the right. deeply metaphysical, actual, there is either a place or a state to which one's right. soul goes after death. And the sort of more modern view, the sort of totally metaphorized view of hell that is like jail or Dachau or, right. you know, the sort of hell on earth idea. Mm -hmm. And I thought there had to be an idea in between that. And it was a lucky coincidence that I was reading yeah. The Long Loneliness yeah. as I was working and kind of slaving over this piece. And <laughs> I read that part that yeah. gives me goosebumps, you know, right. um, do you want to describe it briefly sure, for our sure, listeners? Sure. Who, yeah. Um, yeah. This is before Dorothy Day's conversion to Catholicism at, at the mm -hmm. time that she's a journalist and an activist and um, uh, sort of riding along with activists to their sort of protests all right. around the country, really. But this one happens to be in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. And she's doing a, a protest on the White House and a bunch of women are, are arrested and left in jail essentially to trying they're trying to break these women and make them you know renounce their cause it's a very you know it there is a, a a sort of a jesus in the desert jesus in the wilderness tempted by satan like aspect of it it gets like yeah. pretty mythological they're all like you know i'm not gonna ask for water or food or whatever and so she's like in this place of utter despair and also kind of her bodily strength is being tested and she just has this moment of 
what seems like a total dissociation. But what's interesting about it to me is that she doesn't just go into herself, right? She doesn't go into reverie about her own pain. She goes into this sort of amazing state of empathy where she mm -hmm. thinks of all the people that are sort of hurt around the world and why are they the ones that get this treatment? The, the, the prostitutes, the, you know, drug dealers, mm -hmm. but there are, there are other kinds of prostitutes. She says people that, you know, right. Business people who give themselves away and risk yeah. their souls uh, on the sort of even flimsier ground of money or like honor or power and things mm -hmm. like this. And she just, she has this amazing moment of empathy with the other people in the world. And I think it sort of prefigures her eventual conversion. Right. And it's just, it, it, I just thought it was a, a moment where she goes into that state that is, you know, she kind of embodies both of them. She's in the sort of newer modern hell of prison. Right. But she's in this totally metaphysical religious space at the same time. Right. So I just thought it, once I read it, I knew that that it had to go yeah. there somewhere. And aside from working on my piece, I was just falling in love with this woman and her story as so many people have, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. since she was alive. And so it, it, it just made sense to me to try yeah. to do Yeah. And it kind of sets up where you go in the piece, which is both the way we do use hell to talk about conditions now or in on Earth somehow, whether mm -hmm. they're, like you said, prisons, concentration camps, you know, the situation on our southern border right now. Right. Uh, but also then the question of sort of universalism, meaning hell either is empty or doesn't exist. Right. Uh, and your own ambivalence is about that because, as you say in the piece, it seems like these earthly hells that we describe, yeah. they tend to be populated by the poor, the marginalized, the right. the abused somehow. And so the question of whether hell, as you say, is sort of a metaphysical reality bears on whether the people who put them in, in those hells yeah. or the people who do the abusing uh, or the people with power in this life, whether they ever really face justice or not. Yeah. I guess I admit to a sort of like Old Testament sensibility of like wanting yeah. to see some parallel in terms of words and fates or something yeah. like that. You know, like mm -hmm. I grew up often, you know, kind of one of the strands of the churches I went to was a kind of prosperity gospel that like right. you reap what you sow. If you devote yourself and offer yourself to God, not only will you make it to heaven or whatever, but you will in in some sort of almost like Calvinist way, like people will be able to see your election even while you're here on earth, mm -hmm. you know, that uh, prosperity in terms of money or whatever will, you know, be added unto you, right. you know. And I always that, – that was something that um, just as I got older got me angry. Right. Because I could see that it was not true. Right. That there were all sorts of bad actors of all kinds that – seem to float through life and then float out of life. Yeah. And then people that I knew, whether whether it was in church or outside of church, religious people or not, people that I considered to be holy people mm -hmm. who had to fight their way through everything mm -hmm. and often died in that struggle, right? And so the question is, you know, that that's not arguable, right? That's real. That's what you see right. with your eyes. The the sort of the the truth or not of the prosperity gospel, it doesn't need to be a question. You look around and you see it's right. not true. Uh -huh. So the only so the real question is, okay, so are the promise the later promises, are they true? The mm -hmm. the final things, right? Mm -hmm. And so I've always just had a struggle with that and I guess I do feel my dander go up when I then think that Balthazarian empty hell or or yeah. you know sparsely populated hell hell. It's like Really, that person just gets you know swept up too. Yeah, you know, yeah. um, I, I I I do have trouble with that. Yeah, especially well, I, now, right? There's yeah, like... yeah. I thought it was interesting too that if you were to think about, okay, I'm going to write something on religion that appeals to modern people, yeah. <laughs> right? Or you know, the kind of ambivalent. Yeah. Uh, you know, we both live in in New York, and uh, you know, hell wouldn't be the place to start, <laughs> right? You might talk about love or. You might say, oh, you know, have you read Pope Francis on uh, climate change? Have you read Laudato Si? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, these points of connection that are a little <laughs> more like common ground. Sure. Or, uh, and so I, I, I thought hell was such an interesting way to kind of get at the question of, well, as, as the title of the piece is, how hell has shaped the way we think. Right. Meaning 
you can imagine the piece written from the other perspective, how the way we think now has shaped our view of hell, right? right. Like we used to believe in this very literal version of it. And now yeah. it's, it's all, you know, an internal state or hell is the life we make for ourselves when we you right. know, live a certain way or have certain values. But the, you did the opposite. Yeah. And, and I wondered if you could say a little bit more about the strain and the piece of hell being the language we use to describe the realities around us. Yeah. Or if there were anything you learned in, as you were writing it, what maybe how your thinking changed or just that particular element of the piece was really interesting because it was a way of like meeting the modern mind, so to right. speak, through, again, this unexpected way, which is hell. Right. Um, well, it's, it's interesting. Like one way I gauge the reality of things is by how lasting the ideas that they create happen to be through culture, right? Like mm -hmm. I'm this person who cares about books and things like this, you know, so the sort of cultural aspects of theological truths or ideas are really mm -hmm. interesting to me. It's like, yeah. how long do those, does the sort of bedrock idea and its cultural expression move in parallel, right? And right. you want to, track mm -hmm. that and, and on some level uh, as a person who trusts the the cultural more than maybe someone else does yeah that to me points to a, a truth but then also like you know the idea that you mentioned of like this being kind of maybe a hard place to meet the modern mind yeah interestingly i mean i think especially now maybe it's not you know i i i, I sort of think that and this certainly describes my own you know i i i'm a very ambivalent believer that's uh -huh. that's who i am you know yeah. i some days i wake up with the whole you know fully convinced of everything and some days mm -hmm. there are individual truth claims that i'm like do i really believe that i'm always like poking at, at myself so i'm at, yeah. you know some days i wake up and there's a god but he doesn't like me and some days yeah. you know it's like mm -hmm. it's it's different every day but recently and this is i think i'm thinking about these things more than maybe i i, I have in my adult life is that i think that so many of our strains come from our desire to have some kind of bedrock and mm -hmm. to have some sort of, this is why I'm so um, inspired by the sort of, it seems to me the strength. And I loved your piece in Descent about the uh, Catholic left. Oh, thank you. And those expressions that continue to flower because mm -hmm. I know the things that I believe. It's actually not hard for me to state my principles as a person, mm -hmm. but the problem is, when we start to talk to other people, you know, and yeah. how can I express my beliefs that are totally contingent on where I live and where I'm from and who my parents are? Mm -hmm. And it, how can I express them in terms of something tougher, yeah. something harder to move? Mm -hmm. And therefore, like, yes, I would love to, like, I bought the sort of verso edition of La Dato Si. I, like, I, you know, <laughs> yeah. I loved that that was something that I could like show my friend or whatever. But yeah. on some level, that's that's on the idea of just like simpatico. It's like, oh, the, the Pope thinks just like you. He thinks climate right. change is a problem. Right. Great. Yeah. But it's like, I think the actual yearning is for like the thing beneath the thing, the, uh -huh. the conviction from which that right. kind of concern flows. And so something like this that I think, you know, maybe it's a little tougher. Maybe it's something that might turn someone off initially. Like, but I think if you make it through it, you can see. That's why I think at the end you start to see mm -hmm. at the end of that piece, I tried to talk about other things to which this might pertain, whether yeah. it's abolitionism, whether it's um, the border, whether it's the environment, right? I wanted to show how this bedrock then can bloom outward to all yeah. kinds of different concerns. And, and maybe that attracts you to the bedrock, right? Yeah. I have to all, also think, okay, but what kind of world do I want to see now? Mm -hmm. And if I think that there is some mirroring between the concrete and the visible mm -hmm. and the sort of spiritual and the invisible, yeah. then maybe my desire to see someone, something like abolitionism, my, my sort of fellow feeling about people who fight for that should yeah. inform my thought about even higher things. Right. Right. Um, it's a way for me to think about politics in terms of utopianism. I'm interested if you have any further thoughts on kind of religion's place in this political moment. Yeah. Um, I think in some ways we're aware of the, the sort of bad side of religion mm -hmm. in a very distinct way right now. I mean, you, we could go through the statistics, the number of white evangelicals who voted for Trump sure. or the number of white Catholics who voted for Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, but we also see there is a kind of discourse around the religious left or we see 
someone like Reverend Barber's Moral Mondays movement. So it, it feels to me just like it's a very interesting moment to be someone who's very interested in religion and very interested in politics and how they connect because sure. it's a, it feels like a fluid moment where people are asking the interesting questions and we're not any of us quite sure what the answers are. Yeah. I mean, the, one of the great things about certainly Catholicism is the communion of the saints. And yeah. so you think about Oscar Romero, who like right. you know, who brings these things together in yeah. a way that you can yeah. make sense of that. Like yeah. it, it, you, you can't read him, read his his sermons, uh, which I just like just finished doing a couple months ago. Right. You can't read his sermons without the deep conviction that his the politics in which he's in you know, kind of, he can't, he's not choosing to be engaged in the politics arrived at his door and he's figuring out how to deal with it, but you don't lose the, the religious side of it ever. And I think that's where we are today where, I mean, some of us voted for Trump, some people voted for Trump, but for so many of us, especially people like me who, you know, I, I have a lot of regret about how as a young person, I, um, thought about politics Mm -hmm. and, you know, I was a teenager in the Clinton years thinking, you know, thinking along with everybody that history had in fact ended. That, you know. <laughs> right. um, yeah. And even now in, in my sort of young twenties, I worked on the Obama campaign right. uh, mm-hmm. in 2008 and I was 23 or whatever through yeah. that campaign. And I moved to DC and I worked in politics and uh, in the administration. So I, I had this tour through government, but that, that still, I think that so much of the dimension of politics as it pertains to struggle was kind mm-hmm. of a lot of that was covered over during those years. And I mean, our sense of Obama as a good person fundamentally covered a lot of the violence being visited upon people that I think is much easier to see now. And so we, we're at this moment where like, again, like it's not, it's not El Salvador. It's not an exact parallel, but something has arrived. And so, and and so the question is, how do we meet it? And not only how do we meet it right now, but again, how do we ground it in something that we could repeat if yeah. when something different happens i think yeah. that's the that's certainly the attraction for me in this moment as it um pertains to politics yeah, right? yeah. so i don't know i do really admire reverend barber and and and, and many others but it's it's you know yeah. it's hard to know what's what's gonna stick yeah well i think that might be a good note to end on if you're interested in the harder stuff about religion yeah. <laughs> I, I i urge you to read Vincent's essay in The New Yorker, it's online and, uh, again, highly recommended. And, and we'll put the link in when we uh, post the podcast. And thank you very much, Vincent. Appreciate, Appreciate it. it. Yeah. Looking to connect with like-minded people to discuss the pressing issues at the intersection of faith and contemporary politics and culture? Check out our Commonweal Local Communities. Log on to www.commonwealmagazine.org and click on the Communities link. The paintings of Hilma of Klint, the early 20th century Swedish abstract expressionist, are an exhibit at New York's Guggenheim Museum through late April. Our associate publisher, Megan Ritchie, and our assistant editor, Griffin Olenek, have gone to see the show, and here they talk about the deeply spiritual nature of Offklint's vision and the feeling of abiding by her work in the days that have followed. Megan, what were some of the things that drew you to Helma Offklint? What charged you up to go and see that show? Well, I had never even heard her name before. I felt sort of embarrassed that as a person who claims to love abstract expressionism, who's very excited by the idea of early 20th century abstract expressionism in Scandinavia, I had never even heard her name before. And then I heard all of these stories about the for whom she made the work, how she made the work, the temple that she wanted the work installed in and all of its yeah. likeness to the Guggenheim. And I thought, this, yeah. is just worth, this is worth seeing. We've got to get over there. Well, it's really interesting because it's kind of right up our alley as Commonweal, right? We read about um, politics, religion, culture. Um, and here you've got at one of New York City's biggest cultural events and biggest cultural institutions, the Guggenheim, having a show about an unknown artist whose works are deeply spiritual. And I know for me, that was one of the biggest attractions of the show was that this was a, it led me to write about the show. I loved it so much. But you had, you know, this uh, artist who had been classically trained, uh, all of a sudden discovering for herself abstraction and using it as a kind of pathway 
uh, into accessing divinity. That's what I found so fascinating about it. So let me just say a bit about Hilma af Klint and her biography. She was born in the 1880s in Sweden. Um, she grew up in an upper-middle-class family. She was trained uh, as an artist at the Royal Academy of Sweden. And she was a really talented, classically trained painter. And she sold portraits. She sold landscapes. Some of these are on view, not many of them, but early in the exhibit, just to give you a sense of how good she was uh, at representing and seizing the natural world and its forms. But she gets increasingly interested in spirituality and religion, partly um, precipitated by the death of her sister when she was 18. She begins attending seances, uh, gets interested in spiritualism and theosophy, which were popular with educated elites in Europe and America at the time. And, but then she just takes off on this journey where she, she believes that she hears a divine commission to paint a, a series of works for a temple, an imaginary temple that's going to be, in a way, it's Christian in inspiration, but it's also ecumenical. It's also interreligious. She was very interested in pursuing, I guess let's call it a kind of syncretism of the world's various religions. And so she understands her task in life to be, she says, I'm, I'm going to take this high commission from what she called her spiritual guides. Uh, these were the kinds of, not that she was hearing voices, but these were the, uh, let's call them spiritual entities with whom she interacted. And that's the result we see. The Guggenheim show really, it doesn't present a full range of her works. It really just focuses on this very intense period of creativity between, I think, 1906 and 1920 that were never seen or exhibited during her lifetime. She had this famous embargo where she said, Nobody should see them until 20 years after I died. And so that was in 1944. Um, and it wasn't really until the 1980s that museums even began showing them. So that's really what the Guggenheim gives us, is it gives us, a, in a way, a quite a respectful representation of what she wanted to do. She had sketched out this temple, which was going to you know, have multiple layers to it. It was going to be round. And it looks just like Frank Lloyd Wright's rotunda. That's what I found so striking. But it, it dovetails with this uh, other discourse uh, in the art world right now is that in a secular culture, so many of us are longing for transcendence. And art museums, not only because of the quantity of religious art that's contained within them, but just because they're, they're spaces that are set apart from the ordinary hustle and bustle of life, they've kind of taken on this sacred quality, I would say, in the, at least in the 21st century. So why don't we just say uh, two words about what it's like to see the show? What happens when you arrive in the Guggenheim Rotunda after you've made it through security and you've got your tickets and everything else? What do you see? You just you said earlier that you loved the show, and I can't help but think of what I really loved about the show, which had a little bit less to do with her reasons for making the work and her seeking, though that is very exciting to me. It had a lot to do with the forms, mm. the tones, the color, the gesture, uh, the grandness of the whole show, the amount of work that she made mm. over this period of time, mm -hmm. um, sort of a virtuosity in terms of abstraction, given the fact that she probably hadn't encountered that much abstract work at the time. So yeah, it was practically in, non-existent in the early 1900s, right? Right. It's um, not like Kandinsky was famous or Mondrian was famous, and she, cause she said, well, I want to do that. She had to invent her own thing. Yeah, and so that the big question through, that I was asking myself throughout the show was, did she invent these new forms? Mm. Um, she certainly invented them for herself and her studio practice, but what was it that made these forms, this expression, these gestures, the rich symbolism in each of these works, what made it possible? Mm. When you walk into the rotunda, you see the 10 largest, mm. 10 really huge works. I guess they're probably about... Yeah. Uh, I think there's something like six by eight feet. Each. No, they're even bigger. They're eight by ten. Wow. Or eight by ten and a half. Yeah. So they're larger than a you know than an ordinary human. Super tonal, very brightly colored, really kind of like outlandish, but also organic forms done on a big scale. Mm. Um, and each of the pieces, though there are ten, and though they're meant to be a series, they're all completely unique. Mm -hmm. And it was just really exciting. It, it's not very often that you encounter work of that size and scale. You're just kind of enveloped ever. in it. It's like stepping into, I think my sense was, it was like stepping into almost like liquid color. Like you're just awash in color. Like you start off and there are these blues and then they change to orange and then they change to pink and yellow. And nowadays it's sort of rare to have the experience that 
these works elicit, it's very rare to have an experience like that apart from technology. They're that charged. Yeah, they're really char- – charged is a great word, I think. Um, it's like it, – it's really not like an iPhone screen. I mean, we're so used to these small, tiny devices with, you know, their retina displays and their brilliant colors. But these are, you know, works of tempera on paper that uh, she allegedly – had to complete uh, by standing over them. So they were on the ground, almost like Jackson Pollock, if you think of Pollock, like, (laughs) you know, throwing paint around. Off Clint herself in the 1910s, which is when she made them, um, had to make individual panels that she would then paste together. Um, But she completed them also very quickly. That was um, part of her process, was that she would set herself really precise limits. And that, you know, she would say, I'm going to make seven paintings in seven days. And that was it. And what she came up with was what that was the result but you get this sense of freedom creativity and i think that's one of the things that we were we were mentioning it was almost like being delivered out of our ordinary lives but it was like it was like stepping outside of you know the chaotic city and just into this world of i I don't even know how to call it like utter revelry in the beauty of form and color So we started our conversation talking about the feeling that we experienced upon seeing the work for the first time Mm -hmm. and uh, being that she was an abstract – well, definitely expressionism, abstract in a lot of the work, though some of the work was a little bit more representational. Mm -hmm. I want to end our conversation just talking about the feeling of abiding by her work after Mm. having left the show and just like I think of the work often. Mm. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and so – And I think it is because of how it makes me feel, though, for other reasons as well. Is there anything you'd like to add to that? Like, what sort of space did Mm. the work create for you? That's a great question. Yeah, I think I've continued to think about it almost in the vein of joy. I think that there's a lightness to Hilma Af Klint's art, and that comes through in it comes through in the colors, it comes through in the curves uh, and the lines. And I, I guess I believe the way that I that I experienced things. I went back to see it again after we had uh, after we'd seen it that initial time, and I just saw different things. Um, I saw almost like the, I was transported into the you know the realm where she really wanted to lead me, uh, where she wants to lead all of her viewers, and that is kind of beneath the appearance uh, of surfaces where things can seem so jagged and out of place and uh, chaotic. Uh, you know, even as we're recording this, uh, you know, over Riverside Park, we're listening to sirens, you know, the sounds of the city. It, it gave me a real respite for that through color and form. And so as I go about my day now, uh, when we're recording this, I'm attentive to color, you know, on the sides of buildings and in trees and in the water, in the natural environments that surround things, but also in people's faces, the, the colors that they choose to wear. I think Hilma Clint was, you know, attentive to all of these details. And I think what she was trying to suggest was that beneath all of it, the ways that we present ourselves, uh, there's a there's a unity and a beauty that takes a myriad of, of forms of expression. And, and that's what she's she's kind of trying to lead us into, that white space where all colors are contained, if that makes sense. So that's what, yeah, it sat with me. And, you know, I don't think it'll go away. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. Griffin's review of the Hilma Off Clint show was the cover story of our January 4th, 2019 issue and can be found on our website. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by associate publisher Megan Ritchie and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. David Dalt did the editing. We'll be back soon with the next episode of the Commonweal Podcast. If you like what you've heard, we have extended versions of these segments either through our website or on your favorite podcast feed. This is Dominic Preziosi. Thanks for listening.